Today on the Almond Journey podcast. With labor shortages and the cost of labor going up, we've been running into more and more orchards, leaving more and more mummies per tree than I've ever seen in my career. Independent PCA Justin Nay shares advice and experience for your integrated pest management program. to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hammerich, and I'm traveling up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities, and advance this almond industry. Today, we head north to the Chico area to visit with independent pest control advisor and crop consultant Justin Ney. We caught Justin on a rare day in the office as he's usually commuting all throughout the valley to be on site with the farmers that he and his employees serve. Justin's company, Integral Ag Incorporated, was formed in 2008 after he spent a couple years working for another independent PCA. Before that, Justin earned his PhD in entomology from UC Riverside, where he did research on the carob moth, which is a big pest of dates in the Coachella Valley and is the cousin of the almond industry's biggest pest, the navel orange worm. In today's episode, we'll get a full year overview of Justin's approach to monitoring and managing almond orchard pests, primarily that navel orange worm. We start at the beginning of the year with what Justin stresses is the bedrock of navel orange worm integrated pest management, winter sanitation. Then we move through the growing season and learn what has worked and what hasn't worked as Justin and his team work with growers all throughout the state. We'll then end with harvest sampling, which Justin says is one of the most important things that they do as part of their integrated pest management program. Really a ton of information here today, and Justin has so much knowledge as a scientist, a business owner, and a PCA with many years of almond experience. When it comes to pest monitoring for almonds, January is a very important month for us because it is the end of sanitation season for removal of mummies and managing navel orange populations. So we're going around to all of our, our ranches and farms and collecting almond mummies and counting almond mummies in the tree. And the, the mummies that we collect, we open them all up and we inspect them for navel orange worm in different uh, stages of development. And then we can come up with a population estimate as well as when that population is going to emerge in the field based on the size and the ages of the larvae. So that's kind of what we're focusing on right now. And that sets our baseline. That sets how we're going to start the whole year. Does the farmer have 20 navel orange worm females per acre or does he have 200? And that's going to set what mitigation we're going to be dealing with for the rest of the season. And so sometimes for one reason or another, uh, a grower does excellent sanitation and we can say, well, barring fly-ins and we'll see what the monitoring traps let us know. You might not have to do any navel orange worm sprays this year. Or on the other side, sometimes we come to a grower or we're in big trouble and we can see the mummies, we can see the worms. We know it's going to be a tough year and every year is different. It's never the same for us in the almonds. And so January is where we 
kind of know what we're going to be looking at for the rest of the year. And a couple of follow-up questions on that. And I'm sure I might be getting ahead of myself. You might be getting here, but does the scouting that you're doing right now, you know, depending on that larval stage, you said it sort of changes your baseline. Does that actually change the threshold when it comes to like, when you see them in traps? Okay. Because we knew our baseline was X, it actually is going to change how we treat the threshold when you're trapping in season. Does it change? So yes, the knowledge of the amount of infest in the mummies and the number of mummies that are left in the trees helps us establish a baseline. Then as we move into the spring, we around bloom, we'll set up our monitoring devices in our orchards and we'll try to confirm based on those counts, those weekly counts, how accurate our our estimate was and when our estimate comes back. It looks like we hit our number if that was a a low population and we're confirming that through our monitoring devices, then we will determine what level of mitigation during the spring will be needed. And sometimes that means a, a may spray if the, the farmer left a lot of mummies in the orchard, or maybe it's just very few and they don't even need to do a worm spray for the season. So yeah, the the baseline we established in January, we were basically working with that all spring to determine, you know, whether that is going to play out ultimately in harvest damage and what we have to do to make sure that the grower maintains ideally the premium level of inedibles. That's what our goal is. You know, if they've gone through and done the shaking of the trees and you see that, boy, we still have, you know, mummies out here that we need to worry about. How do you help them economically make the decision to get like a polling crew out there to see if it's, you know, if it's worth the extra investment? Yeah. So when it comes to mummy sanitation and, and after we've ran the shakers through, and that's our recommendation pretty much to every grower we work for, shake everything you can. It's the least expensive way to remove the most mummies from the tree by far. And then after that, we use our our infest rates. So that would be the number of mummies that are infested with navel orange worm. And we look and see how many are left and come up with how many females per acre that means are still present. And if that number is above what that grower does typically in terms of their, their yield, if that can lead to a large enough population that can hurt them during July when the non-parel split, June, July, we'll let them know and say, hey, you've got a population out there that's still not good enough. And, you know, they're not coming off with the shaker. The nuts are stuck for one reason or another. Every year is a little different in that regard. And we'll recommend, you know, they go out and potentially try polling if it's in their budget. And lately it's not. Lately it's been really tough to get growers to go poll. Then we start having those other conversations, you know, okay, well, if we don't want to spend the money polling, well, look at the cost of mating disruption, look at the cost of mass trapping, look at the cost of in-season sprays, and try to come up with the, the best that we can do. So with labor shortages and the cost of labor going up and the amount of hours that laborers can work, we've been running into more and more orchards, leaving more and more mummies per tree over the past three or four years than I've ever seen in my career. It's not on a good trajectory right now. 
How variable are fly-in populations? I mean, it would seem to me it would probably greatly depend on how much your neighbor is doing winter sanitation as well. Or are fly-ins somewhat negligible if you do a really good job with winter sanitation and that's kind of the only threat? So migration of navel orange worm females particularly can be a, a real problem if the source of the navel orange worm is outside of your own farm. There's nothing as bad as having your own problem in your own field. That's always the worst. But I've seen over the past 15 years, I've seen plenty of really bad neighbor problems that have led to growers that have done excellent mummy sanitation, done everything right, still end up with, you know, losing their premiums because of migrating navel orange worm damage. And there's really very little as a farmer that you can do to stop that. You just kind of time your, your sprays the best you can for whole split when that population's coming into your field, but there's very little you can do to stop it. And what about in-season trapping and monitoring? Are there any things that, that you think are really important that you would want to stress to people, you know, how important they are when it comes to either the types of traps or the types of monitoring? Yeah. When it comes to monitoring, especially for specifically for navel orange worm, there's basically three main staples for monitoring devices. There's the, the male pheromone traps that track males from a large distance. There's egg traps that collect, uh, eggs from mated females. And then there's the mated female trap that just collects the mated females. So those basically allow you to monitor when the peak activity is occurring, when it starts, when it stops, and allows you to check that baseline that you started the season with as to whether or not you've got a problem. And each of those types of devices has a different interpretation based on on what they're telling you about the population that you're dealing with. And we use pretty much exclusively the, the mated female monitoring traps. And that's because if we've got mating disruption, we don't have to worry about the male traps not being effective. And we found through our own time and research that we could save a lot of labor instead of counting eggs, you just count females, you know, it's a lot easier. And it reflects for us the way we think about it is the trap is a lure that's calling the female from a very small radius. And you can think of it more along the lines of how many times that tree is being visited by a navel orange worm female. And so over the years, we've come up with our own, our own numbers that work that indicate to us problems or good results are coming based on those. But it still all does start with knowing the population that we're beginning the season with, whether it's moths coming from our field or moths coming from a neighboring field. And we're just watch that moth the whole season long. We do. We really do. What types of uh, variability in sprays will you see in similar areas where orchard sanitation was done well versus maybe not as effectively? I put very little faith in sprays chemical sprays to save me from a problem with navel orange worm. I do not believe you can spray out a navel orange worm problem. I've never really seen that be effective. And I like to start my season and help my growers the best I can 
with a guarantee. That's my goal. <laughs> it's job security. So I want to get them to have the smallest naval long-term population that I can and then work out from that. But like I mentioned previously, sometimes things just don't fall your way for one reason or another, and you're left with uh, larger populations than you'd like to have. And so in those situations where we do have to use treatments uh, at different times of the year, you know, there's very few chemistries available on the market. And, and we use those as judiciously as we can because they're very, very expensive, but there's nothing more expensive than getting really bad rejects and losing a high percentage of your almond crop. So we'll try to do what we can with treatments. But like I said, I, that is not the game I like to play. I like the game where I don't have to recommend a single navel orange room spray. That's the way I like to do this. Yep. Yep. And so your, your primary strategies, I guess, are winter sanitation and then mating disruption. Is that right? Well, you know, if my clients do really good sanitation, we haven't really had a need for mating disruption and we get the population down to fewer than 10 navel orange room females per acre, just mathematically, they can't come back and be a problem by harvest. I'm really not the right guy to ask about mating disruption. I mean, we've done a lot of it over the years and at a lot of ranches and I, I don't know what to say. It's been a marginal success for us at best when we have the populations where we want them it doesn't pencil. And when it does pencil for us, that usually means that the population was higher than we'd like. So it really is about starting with that as low a baseline as possible. Absolutely. That's, that's the whole game. Yeah. Um, starting with the fewest number of naval orange worm per acre that we can is, is what it's all about. And we've been tracking mummies through orchards in the springtime for many years as another tool to help us and understand the rate at which naval orange worm find mummies and the rates at which they reinfest those mummies. And not all mummies are created equal. Uh, naval orange worm, they find the mummies through chemoreception. They can smell them essentially, and they deposit eggs on those mummies. And and so they're very good at finding mummies, but for some reason in the dry years, the drought years, the navel orange room tends to not infest as many as it does in the wet springs, which is very odd to us as we monitor their populations. But we've definitely found that when you start with a small population and you have a small number of mummies, they just can't build up in your orchard. Now, you can have a neighbor problem and the neighbor might not have done a good job and can still feed you a lot of navel orange room during the spring and summer. But if you've got a really small population, there's some people that still do may sprays when they have very low populations of mummies and, and moths, and they're reducing the population to a really small number, but economically it may not be worth it. Same thing with mating disruption. Sometimes in your own field, you have a population so low that mating disruption in your field isn't an economically viable solution for a pest management strategy, especially when no treatments are required. And if you've got a neighbor problem, you can't disrupt their maws. And so you end up with kind of like, well, should we do it? Should we not? And a lot of the growers we work with, you know, they pencil it out and kind of like, well, if it doesn't pay, we'll just not do it. 
That's how a lot of mating disruption has worked out for us over the past. But it is getting adopted by more and more growers. And I was just looking at the ABC position report just this morning, and Nonpareil was over 2% worms this year at the USDA grades. Well, the inedibles were. It might have been more than just navel orange worm. But that was, it was a pretty tough year for the almond industry this year. I was surprised to see that. Right. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's, that is interesting. Well, uh, so we kind of went through the trapping. Anything else in season that we should mention just in terms of a monitoring program to keep in mind? And then I, I also want to talk about the um, harvest sampling as well. Yeah. I think probably one of the, the most difficult things as a pest control advisor when it comes to, to monitoring for navel orange worm is I tell my clients it's a numbers game. Naval orange worm female lays so many eggs. You have so many non-parel nuts per acre, depending on your crop size. So it's trying to figure out that relationship. A population of 75 naval orange worm female per acre can do 1% of damage to a non-parel, you know, a 2,500 pound crop. But on a 2,000 pound crop, that same population of naval orange worm can do more damage. So we're always trying to figure out and it's a moving scale each year, our crop estimate, which is the backbone of the value, how much we should spend managing navel orange worm, and then how much that navel orange worm population presents a threat to that. So it's being able to gauge with some reasonable accuracy, the crop size in a given year is probably one of the more difficult aspects from my perspective on the level of investment that we need to do on on managing that navel orange worm population. It's a fine line. We don't want to manage it to zero. We can't manage it to zero. That's not realistic unless the grower sanitizes to zero. And so from there, we're just, we're trying to always walk a, a fine line for what's the population density, how many pounds per acre we're going to get. Does that treatment or that mitigation, whether it's mating disruption or treatments to pay for itself, and so it's challenging and there's not many growers are, are that good at estimating their own crop size. I'm not good at it either. So <laughs> I, I try, but it's not that easy. So. Yeah, no, I do want to talk about, so you do all this, obviously the bedrock of all this is that winter sanitation. Then you, you talk about those decisions you need to make in season, the in season trapping and monitoring. Why after all of that, after the deed is done, do you still go through and do harvest sampling? What does that tell you that is so important? Yeah, harvest sampling in almonds to us means when the nonpareil or whenever variety gets put on the ground, and sometimes nowadays growers are harvesting with off the ground techniques. So we're out there collecting from bins and trailers, but um, when the nuts go down on the ground and they're going to dry there for a few days, it gives us an opportunity to collect the nuts in different areas of the field from each variety, bring them back to our office and inspect them for the types of damage to the kernels, to the meats. And in doing that, we can determine not only how well we did with our program for the season, but we also get to see all the different types of, of damage that occur. If we've got a peach twig borer problem that we missed or, or ants that we weren't aware of or leaf-footed bug or stink bugs. So it allows us to, to really see firsthand how we did with our pest management for the season. It's probably the most important thing I think that we do 
even though we do a lot of work with, you know, naval orange room and sanitation and checking mummies, doing harvest samples really allows us to bring the year to the grower before they're going to get their results from the processor. It can let them know what they can expect. It can let them know from us what we did right, what we did wrong, and we can start making improvements from there. So it is, I think, it is the most important thing that we do. And I've learned so much in my career from going through harvest samples. You can't hide from the problems and it sure is great when you see great results. <laughs> Can you give us any examples of, I don't know if you call it a revelation, but certainly a lesson that you've learned from, oh boy, we thought we were on top of this, but we learned we need to do X, Y, Z next year. Absolutely. The first eye opener I had with harvest samples came from a, a young orchard in Kern County. It was a fourth leaf, I think, or third leaf, maybe it's third leaf. And we did a traditional ant bait and broadcast it. And we didn't really see any problems. And then we went out and started collecting the first variety, the nonpareil that came off the tree. And with a small crop, you know, I mean, third leaf almond orchard maybe is producing two or 400 pounds per acre. A small number of ants was lighting us up. We were running 15 to 20% rejects. Now, that's only three or 400 pounds, but... It doesn't matter when the grade comes in because you don't get dinged on pounds, you get dinged on a percentage. And so it created a, a big problem. So one of the first things I learned from harvest samples was size of the crop matters and a small population of ants can lead to a lot of, a lot of percent damage in a hurry. And it was painful to see. One more quick, real specific question on the harvest sampling you know, what is the sampling technique there? What is an adequate amount of nuts to be sampling? Well, that's a really good question, Tim. So when it comes to harvest samples, the way that our company has developed over the years, you almost can't take enough nuts. It's a time constraint. So we've gone to six to 800 nonpareil per 60, 80 acres, and then 200 of the pollinators. The way that we do it is very structured from year to year. We go to the same rows in a block and we collect from the same nonpareil rows, the same pollinator rows year after year. You walk the windrow, if they're windrowed, and you collect a set number of nuts from, depending on how long the row is, till you get up towards, you know, 150 to 200 nuts. In, and we just put them in a brown paper sack label that sack, bring it back to the office and go through them by hand. So I'd say six to 800 nonpareil and then 200 of the pollinators, I guess independence and Shasta, we treat like nonpareil as well. And that helps you kind of see if you've got an, a side of the property that's worse than the other side, which we do see with fly-ins sometimes of naval orange room fly-ins. It also can kind of help you identify if you've got a section that's maybe got ant issues and things like that. And that's what I would suggest to anybody. If you do go out and collect harvest samples, create a protocol that works for you and then just stick with it from year to year so that the data are consistent. That's the most important thing. I'm glad you shared that. That's a great illustration. And also gets back to what we were talking about earlier about the size of the crop really does matter. Well, you mentioned ants there. Obviously, we've talked most of the time about navel orange worm, by far the biggest, you know, pest problem. So as, you know, we're getting ready to start the season, what other than navel orange worm monitoring are you most concerned about? And what does that look like from a trapping standpoint? 
Well, the next biggest problem that we've had in our harvest samples from year to year has been the increase in plant bug damage, leafwood bug, green stink bugs. Occasionally, we find some brown marmorated at, at some ranches, but we haven't really ran into those as being a, a source of damage yet in, in our blocks. But the amount of stink bug damage has been in, increasing over the past few years. And there's no real good traps on the market yet. The scientists have been working diligently. I think even the Almond Board's been funding some of that research, but nothing's come to market yet. So you just really just have to go out and look at the nuts, look at the trees for where the insects are. So you're monitoring them constantly every week. You, you get out of your truck, you go check your traps and you look around Hopefully, we'll have a trap before too long that we can use to, to monitor those larger stink bugs and leaf-footed bugs. But as we sit here today, we, we don't. And it's a growing problem. And, and as, I guess, the pyrethroids get phased out, which is one of the, the last chemistries that works for them, my instinct is we're going to see that family of insects or order of insects start to become a bigger problem for us in the almond industry. Very cool. Well, not very cool, but uh, I'm glad we mentioned it. It's good to talk about this stuff. You know, that's why we have a podcast rather than, you know, just writing an article about do X, Y, and Z. We got to talk about the issues, even if there aren't good solutions. But as I'm kind of running up against time here, I uh, want to give you a chance to share either anything we didn't get to that you think would be worth mentioning. Again, taking into account everybody's going to be just starting the season as most people listen to this. And so what to keep top of mind or just in general, you know, your message out there to an audience of primarily growers, but probably some other PCAs as well. Well, I think uh, from my perspective and the time that I've been in this industry, which I've been very thankful that I've had the opportunity to work in the almond industry. It's been a very good learning and a good growth experience for me, but it, I think the biggest take home is we just can't turn our back on sanitation. The almond industry, they need to be diligent. There's just no shortcuts. We turn our back after harvest and the navel worm is still flying until November or December. She's laying eggs on those mummies. And so every year is different. Even if you think it's been good for a couple of years, you could still end up with a, a problem because we post-harvest I mean, we're all out of the field. We're not really tracking the, the navel orange room very much at that time. And so stuff that you did, the number of mummies you left last year, it might not give you the same result the following year. And so it's good to go out. It's good to get in the field and and develop that model for your property of how many navel orange room you're starting your season off with. That way you're not getting blindsided with your first harvest samples as they come in, you knew it when you started. And that would be my take home. And nothing's changed in, since I started. Sanitation is where it all begins and where it ends. If you don't do that right, nothing else is going to matter. Well, excellent point to end on there, bringing it back full circle to the importance of that winter sanitation. Thank you very much to Justin Nay for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. And we have a few more helpful IPM tools and resources to share with you on today's ABC update. 
Advancements in integrated pest management really are an important part of ensuring that farmers can grow almonds profitably while maintaining the highest quality standards. Almond Board Chief Scientific Officer Dr. Josette Lewis says IPM is as much about cost effectiveness as it is about pest control. IPM is addressing one of the highest inputs to the cost of production. Managing pest and disease is right up there in the top three of uh, what it costs on an annual basis to grow almonds. And so our investments have always been very robust in this area so that we can ensure that growers have diverse set of tools available to them to both effectively and at the lowest cost manage that aspect of production. And then lastly, because uh, almonds are a product renowned for the quality in not only the taste and the health, but also in how we grow plays an important role in our ability to continue growing the global market for almonds is to tell the story and to continuously improve the way we grow almonds. Lewis added that California has some of the highest standards for environmental stewardship, so continued investment in new tools and practices help growers to remain viable. To support the implementation of all this research, ABC has some resources available. Really, the proof is in the pudding when growers and PCAs and pesticide applicators use those tools. And so always looking for ways to get the best information in the hands of the industry professionals. And this um, application quick tips for pest control is a really simple resource, but a powerful one that can help a grower or a PCA. It's really simple and easy to understand shop poster and available in both English and in Spanish. So we hope that uh, every grower and PCA will take advantage of this quick tips. These posters serve as a great daily reminder, but there are also other resources available for those that may want to go deeper on the latest information about these topics. We have two other ways to stay abreast of new developments or to maybe go into some more depth. So the great library of resources that are available to folks in the almond industry is on almonds.com. There's an IPM section, which has a broad variety of tools and resources to help support your IPM program. In addition, because things are coming out new each year from our research program, and because having the opportunity to hear things directly, to hear from other people within the industry, how they put those tools into practice, This is the second year that the Almond Board will be running Training Tuesday. So twice a month on the second and fourth Tuesdays of the month, we will have webinars that are free and available to the industry. Any of those that have to do with IPM or pest management will have CEU credits associated with them. But it's also a great opportunity to hear from others and the experience that a PCA or grower brings to helping you understand how to put these into practice or what worked for them and what might work for you. So hope people will tune in to Trading Tuesdays as well. To discover more about these resources, head to almonds.com forward slash IPM, and that will take you directly to a page with many of them available for you. As always, you can also reach out to the field outreach team directly at fieldoutreach at almondboard.com. Thanks so much to Josette Lewis for sharing these resources on today's show. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe that everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Justin Nay, may have sparked a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. 
I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to this show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together.